Thank you very much, worship team. Really appreciate you all. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been working through this chapter for a number of weeks now. I'd like to finish it up tonight. And looking at the latter portion of this chapter, verses 26 through 40, of 1 Corinthians 14. It's helpful to keep in mind that uh, the Bible has a purpose, and a number of different purposes, but basically it's calling us to rest in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins in light of all that we've already sung about, that he lived a life we could never live, died, uh, excuse me, yes, lived a life we could never live, died the death we deserve to die, and rose from the dead. And he did all that, that we might be rescued from the just penalty for our sin. And so the Bible is all about Jesus, and it's all about calling us to rest in him for the forgiveness we need and for the eternal life that he promises. But it also is filled with all kinds of various promises to those who are trusting in Jesus that apply to our everyday lives. And he calls us to hope in God, to put our hope in his promises, even when we don't understand, even when things are mysterious and confusing and and we don't know what God is doing, he calls us to trust his promises. And then finally, he calls us to pursue love in every relationship. He calls us to make sure that our goal in our marriages, with our children, uh, in our church, in our workplace, is our goal is ultimately not to get what we want per se, but to make sure that we're loving in the way that he calls us to love. And so what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 14 is telling the church how to love each other in a worship setting in light of the various spiritual gifts that God gives to his people. And at this point in time in history, there was an issue over the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so Paul, at the very beginning of the chapter, says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And so he goes on from there. So he's basically saying, you guys haven't been loving each other in the way that you exercise your gifts and in the way that you worship. And there's a lot more that we can say about that. But we've been touching on the fact that it begins with the call to applying 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, and applying it to the spiritual gifts and to their worship service. And he says, if you're really loving each other in the worship service, you will make sure that what you do is something that will build up those around you. It won't be a private affair. It's not a private kind of experience where you're just there for yourself. You're there to be a part of building up others in the body of Christ. And that's what the word edify means. It means to build up in faith and in hope and in love. And he says in order for that building up to take place, people have to understand what's being said. And that's why... He's basically saying, if you're just gathering together in worship and everybody's speaking in an unknown tongue of some kind, people don't know what's being said, and therefore they're not being built up in faith and in hope and in love. So there's a need for clarity in terms of speech. And that's why Paul could say, even though I speak in tongues more than you do, I'd rather speak five words uh, that you can understand than 10,000 words that you don't understand. And so he goes on from there to talk about the fact that part of the problem is that they've misunderstood the purpose of tongues and the purpose of prophecy. And without getting back into all that, he basically argues that for the worship service, the gift of prophecy should have prominence, not the gift of tongues in light of the purpose of those gifts. Well, the last thing he talks about is the issue of orderliness in a worship service. And many of you know that every week we have an order of service. And the idea of an order of service actually is rooted in, for, for, um, for instance, in this passage right here, because Paul is going to argue that the worship service should not be a free-for-all. You shouldn't just show up and, and wonder what's going to happen. He actually says it ought to be structured. Not only should it be intelligible, it ought to be structured. 
And so read with me beginning in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. He says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should, it should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated... The first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. But women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Father, we do pray again that you would just help us to understand what your word says, what it means, and how it applies to us today, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul says some pretty controversial things in this passage. But they're very important things for us to think through. But let me just begin by reminding you that when we first started talking about the gift, the um, issue of spiritual gifts, I mentioned the fact that there are things in the Bible and things in Christianity that can be very challenging. Um, eschatology or the doctrine of end times, what we think is going to happen at the end, is very controversial. Um, the very thing that Sean brought up in his prayer request, the whole issue of Uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how those things uh, play together, work together, as well as the issue of spiritual gifts are all very controversial topics because, for one thing, there are passages that are hard to understand. For another thing, it's very easy for us to think that we have those things all figured out. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, we, we know exactly how those things work. Or even the whole issue of end times, you know exactly how it's going to play out. And sometimes, even with regard to things like spiritual gifts, we know exactly how people should uh, or should not think about those things. And I think the reality is that sometimes we're too dogmatic on things that the Bible isn't as clear on as we might like them to be, whether with regard to end times or things like spiritual gifts. And so that's one reason why I think um, C.S. Lewis could talk about the fact in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan uh, wasn't a safe lion, but he was a good lion. He wasn't a tame lion. And the picture of a lion that's good but not tame is that you cannot fully understand God because God is incomprehensible. We can only understand what he's revealed to us which means there are some limits to what we know and limits to what we understand. He's told us enough so that we can trust him and so that we can love each other, but he hasn't told us everything. And sometimes we just have to be uh, aware of that and realize that the word of God is sufficient for what we need to trust God for and how we need to love. And he's never going to do anything that contradicts his word. And yet sometimes we might need to be a little less dogmatic about some of the finer points of these things that I just mentioned um, so that we can allow for some differences of opinion within the um, world of true Christians, those who are truly trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior and have truly been born again by the Spirit. 
Well, as I mentioned, we've already talked about the importance of love and edification and clarity and purpose, and he comes down to the topic of the need for an orderly worship service. And he's going to argue, basically, that we need to make sure that our order of service is a divine order of service, so to speak, in which there's a need for self-control and a need for evaluation. He's going to argue for both. Self-control, you don't just do whatever you, you feel like doing, and there also should be some evaluation of what's being communicated as well. But if you look at verse 6, he starts off by giving us a picture of what worship looked like in the first century in the church at Corinth. Um, it looks like it was a highly uh, participatory worship service because he says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, when you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, that all things be done for edification. Now, when he says each one, he doesn't mean every single person was going to do something during the worship service. And we know that because he's going to say in a few verses, uh, no more than three people speaking in tongues, no more than three uh, prophesying, which means that it wasn't necessarily everybody doing something every service, but it meant the potential was for everybody at some point to participate in certain ways in the worship service. And so if you look at what the New Testament says about uh, how the believers early on worshiped, you find, for instance, in Colossians 3, talking about singing uh, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Obviously, this verse here in 1 Corinthians highlights the kind of thing we do during our sharing and prayer time. We're actually allowing you the opportunity and different people each week to share a word of praise, uh, prayer requests, or even a word of encouragement to the body. And so that, I think, is reflected in how we worship here. Obviously, praying was a part of it. First Timothy 2 talks about the importance of that. I believe in the context here in First uh, Corinthians with the early church and the issue of tongues, tongues is pictured in First Corinthians as an act of worship. And so that, I believe, is actually part of their prayer uh, time during their worship services, if it was included. Obviously, the gift of prophecy um, performed the role that I do, or whoever preaches or teaches each week. It was a way that God ministered the truth of his word to his people. And then, obviously, I believe they also observe the Lord's Supper each week as well, in light of what he talks about in different places in 1 Corinthians. And so what he does is he says there should be an order of service, and yet everyone, in some sense, is to participate. Um, it's not simply meant to be a, a spectator-type event where we just come and listen to people sing, just come and listen to people talk, but we're really not engaged. And so it's a good thing that we try to engage as much as we can appropriately Paul would say, and he's going to go on to talk about the appropriate ways to be involved or to be silent in the worship service. And so the next section is actually specific guidelines on the, the exercise of tongues and prophecy in the worship service. So again, he's highlighting the fact that um, it wasn't supposed to be a free-for-all and that even though you've got these supernatural gifts that we might think, well, if God is moving someone to, to speak in tongues, shouldn't they just do it? If God is moving someone to just to prophesy, shouldn't they just get up and do it? And Paul is saying, no. <laughs> no, it, it's not a matter of, uh, I just feel like I need to, so I'm going to. He actually says, no, there has to be some restraint, um, exercise, which is an interesting thing when you think about the dynamics of what was going on there and God's gifting people in supernatural ways to do these kinds of things. And so he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue in verse 27, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret, which means you have to wait on each other, and yet no more than three. But what if number four says, wait a minute, God's moving me to speak in tongues too. Well, Paul said, no, three. 
You might say, well, isn't that, isn't that limiting God? Well, no, God said only three. Because Paul was speaking on behalf of God. And so that's an interesting thing about this dynamic, is that he's actually picturing for us something that we might not have thought was really the case, is that God was gifting people, and yet there was a need for self-control in the very exercise of those gifts. And he says that in the worship service for the gift of tongues, there has to be an interpreter. He says in verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. He's not to say anything. Let him speak to himself and to God. The fact that Paul could say, okay, if there's no interpreter to interpret the tongues, the person who has... um, the gift of tongues and, and may want to exercise it is not to do so. He's exercised self-control. But he says, let him speak to himself and to God. Which is an interesting thing to me because there are some who would say tongues was only known for in languages. And the purpose of them was to speak to people who needed to hear the gospel in those languages. My question is, if that was the case then why would Paul put in there, let him speak to himself and to God? It seems like that is implied that there was something more to that gift than just the idea of speaking in a known foreign language in order for the sake of witness. He goes on and he talks about uh, the fact that there should be only two or three prophets who speak, who are receiving revelation from God that they want to share with the congregation. And then he says, interestingly enough, let the others which it implies, I think, the other prophets pass judgment. Or the ESV says, weigh what is said. The idea of passing judgment is actually the same thing that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, when he's talking about believers taking other believers to court. He says, isn't there somebody among you in your own church that can judge between you and your fellow believer rather than going to a secular court where they're not even believers and having your issues resolved. And the word that he used is there in uh, verse 5 of chapter 6 is the same word that he uses here. He says, Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? The idea is the idea of deciding between good and evil or... um, which person is right in a dispute. That's the idea that's there. And Actually, I think it's reflected in what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians when it says in verse 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, growing up, I heard a lot of people use that verse, abstain from every form of evil, to talk about what kind of movies you watch and other things like that. The actual context is of evaluating prophecy. Abstain from prophecies that are not from God. Uh, Don't follow those. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and avoid evil. And so that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 as well. And so, obviously, he also goes on to say, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that was supposed to play out. If somebody was up speaking and someone else says, I've I've got a revelation that maybe that person who was speaking needs to wrap it up. And the other other person steps up and gives their revelation and, and... exhorts and comforts and encourages in light of that. And so it's just interesting to think about how that played out. And he says, For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I think that verse means um, prophets aren't just compelled along in such a way that they can't control themselves. They can control their prophesying and that's what Paul is encouraging them to do just that and then he gives a reason for that he says they're to 
They are to control themselves, exercise self-control in the exercise of their gifts. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the idea of confusion is the idea of disturbance or, or that which would bring disorder to a service. And so if there's no self-control in terms of exercising your gifts, there's not going to be order. Self-control is essential to maintaining a proper order in the worship service. Now, you may notice in the New American Standard, it uh, actually includes at the end of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. In the ESV, they put that at the beginning of verse 34, I believe, which means that there's a difference of opinion over how the Greek should be understood. But many people would say that the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent, those two things ought to go together. Now, the question is, what is Paul talking about here? So far, he has said that um, anyone wants to speak in tongues, but there's no interpreter, they better keep silent. He says, if a man is prophesying, another one has a revelation, then the first man is going to, should sit down and keep silent, let the other man speak. Those phrases, keep silent, are the same thing that Paul uses in this verse. He says, women in the worship service are to keep silent. Now, you may notice that that hasn't been the case in our worship service. There have been women who've prayed in our worship service, and they do every week, most of the time. So the question is, what is Paul talking about here in this passage? He says, in verse 34, As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Now, the word for uh, keep silent is the same word that's used when it's talking about Jesus before uh, the religious leaders on the night that he was betrayed, and they're asking him all kinds of questions and making all kinds of accusations, and it says that Jesus kept silent and did not answer until... The high priest questioned him and said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And it says, And Jesus said, I am. And he went on from there. And so it does not mean that he kept silent totally, but he kept silent with regard to answering any accusations. It was not intent to get out of those uh, accusations or to get out of being crucified. That's why he was there. So he kept silent. There's a purpose in his keeping silent. He wasn't trying to escape the cross, so he did not answer. But when they asked him, are you the Christ? He spoke and he said, I am. So he spoke when he should. He kept silent when he, sh he needed to in light of the purpose of what was going on there. And I think that's really the same kind of thing that's going on here as well is that there's a there's a way in which women are to keep silent in the churches in light of the purpose of what is going on in the worship service and in light of what Paul is talking here because he goes on to say keep silent they are to subject themselves as it says in verse 34 which means basically it's a military term for putting yourself under the authority of someone else uh, submitting to someone else's Leadership. It's the same word that's used in Luke 2 when it says after Jesus was found in the temple by his parents, they took him home, and it says he continued in subjection to his parents. He continued to place himself under their authority. And it says that it is according to the law, that women are to submit according to the law, most um, interpreters believe that's a reference to Genesis 3.16, where it says, actually, after, right after the fall, the Lord says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, there's a lot in there 
basically the idea of rule is the idea of being in authority and that i think is the connection that's being made here is the issue of authority one of the most important principles in interpreting the bible is scripture interprets scripture and so if we look at a passage that's a difficult passage and we're thinking does paul really mean that women are never to speak in the worship service at all or just to come in silently are they not to even sing songs you know what is he really saying here we have to compare scripture to scripture and so in first timothy chapter two i think is probably one of the best commentaries we can get on what paul is doing he lays out the principles in first timothy 2 verses 9 through 15 and he's applying these principles in this particular situation in corinth and in first timothy 2 verse 9 he says likewise i want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as is proper proper for women making a claim to godliness a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet so there paul is saying that women to remain quiet and receive instruction with entire submissiveness to be in subjection to keep silent like he says in first corinthians 14 but to do so in light of the fact they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man and then he's going to go into first timothy 3 and talk about elders who are to teach and exercise authority over the body of christ that only men are to be elders and they are the only ones who are to preach and teach and exercise that kind of authority in the church and so it appears what paul is doing here is answering whatever the questions were that the corinthians had about their worship service and how it was functioning and what the women are to do or not to do but basically applying those principles from first timothy 2 and saying that uh, as he has already said that the prophets are going to pass judgment on the prophecies but he says the women are not to participate in that they are not to be part of passing judgment that's the men's role that's the the role that the men are to play in this setting and they're not to even ask questions um, they're to wait and ask their husbands when they at home assume they could ask one of the elders but he says that women are not to engage in any kind of dialogue in the body that could place them in a position of teaching and in some sense exercising authority in light of the word that's being talked about in that setting and so there, there appears earlier in chapter uh, 11 he talks about in verse 5 but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head and there are many people who would look at that and say well it seems like that paul is including the possibility of women praying in church and maybe even in certain certain situations prophesying but paul is making a careful distinction between those kinds of things for sure and the, anything that would perform the role of teacher or exercising spiritual authority in the worship service and in the body of christ well let me just kind of uh, leave it at that there's there might be other questions you have and i'd be glad to talk to you afterwards about that but i think that's basically what paul is trying to communicate here is that he says ultimately that what he's saying is the word of the lord because just like you and i we might think about that and say well why why is that the case why can't women do this or can't women can't do that or why can't prophets get up and speak if they really feel like they have a word from the lord just because they're number four um well paul would say this is the lord's commandment this must be the best thing this must be the loving thing and so trust the lord and follow the divine order for worship and trust that, that will truly be the best thing and so he says all things at the end must be done properly 
and in an orderly manner. Well, let me make some um, final application with just a few minutes I have left here. Um, obviously, whenever you talk about spiritual gifts in our day and time, since there's so much heated debate over how to look at them and what to think about them, and um, I would imagine there, there are some of you that don't even agree with everything I've said over the last five weeks about spiritual gifts, and I would be surprised if everyone did agree with me because there's so, um, so many ways in which uh, we could disagree over certain aspects of what's going on here. But I at least want to be clear on my understanding of what Paul is saying, and that way we can dialogue more about that and talk more about it. I answered three questions last week, and I want to answer the last three questions that I didn't get to from last week. And probably one of the biggest questions to ask is, shouldn't we be following what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 about uh, having two or three people speak in tongues if there's an interpreter and have two or three people prophesying. I mean, Paul says to do that in the worship service. and He gives us guidelines for it. So the question is, if we're to honor the word of God, why don't we do that here at Coast? It's a good question. Why don't we do that? Um, it's kind of like there's been a controversy lately over something that Alistair Begg said about attending a gay wedding or a, a trans wedding. And some people have talked about the fact that maybe we need to get back to having weddings where we include what is included in the wedding uh, outline in the Book of Common Prayer, where they actually, the minister actually says, if anyone here knows why this couple should not be married, Please speak now or forever hold your peace. And in the Book of Common Prayer, he actually speaks to the couple and says, if you know any reason why you shouldn't get married, speak now. And if somebody raises their hand, you're supposed to halt the wedding until an investigation is done. Then you come back and you finish it. That's how the Book of Common Prayer handles that. And some people would say, let's go back to that. Under, in light of the controversy. Well, the question, I just use that as an illustration of asking the question, why shouldn't we go back to the first century and the church in Corinth and what was going on there? Why aren't we encouraging people to pray for the gift of tongues, pray for the gift of prophecy, so that we can call on them and have two or three share each Sunday and those kinds of things? Well, we certainly should believe that what Paul said here is the word of God and it has application. But it doesn't have the same application in our day and time, I believe, as it did then. And why would that be? It has a different application because at that point in time, um, prophecy especially, and even tongues to some degree, were a feature and, and the focus of the worship of the church in that day and time because God was laying a foundation. In Ephesians 2.20, it talks about uh, the, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. God was laying a foundation of revelation. And uh, all the churches were on the frontier of missions. And so there were all kinds of things going on, and God was doing some unique things and laying that foundation. But... One of the fascinating things is uh, tongues and prophecy and those kinds of things are only mentioned in a few books. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, the book of Acts. You don't find in the rest of the New Testament Peter, Paul, and John giving direction with regard to those gifts. Why not? Well, many people would look at that and say, later on, once God was had laid that foundation of revelation, it moved toward basically what we do today, taking the given revelation and preaching the given revelation. If you look at what Paul tells uh, Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles, which were written later, he says nothing about tongues, nothing about uh, how to manage prophecy in the worship service. Yet he will say in 
1 Timothy 3.14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. <clears throat> so he's basically saying, I'm making sure you know exactly what should be taking place in the household of God, and he doesn't mention trying to manage uh, those gifts as the feature and the focus of the church. And in 2 Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. That, that's to be the focus of the worship of the church. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So it appears even within the first century, before the completion of the New Testament, things had already changed in terms of what God was doing and how the worship of the church was being conducted. And so that's why I would say, yes, we are to seek to understand and apply in principle what Paul is talking about there. And yet it, it won't be exactly the same because things have changed by God's design. Well, another question that comes is, how should we handle subjective experiences? I mean, obviously the whole idea of prophesying is the idea of having a very subjective experience that you communicate to somebody else. And I told you about um, the situation with Jan before we got married and how Prophet Eddie prophesied that she was going to marry a pastor and that she was going to be successful in school and that she shouldn't be uh, dating that guy she was dating or whatever. I mean, all kinds of things were included in there that actually had some relationship to what was taking place and, and were in some sense fulfilled. So the question is, what do you do with that? And one of the helpful things that Jan said was, I did not know what to do with that. I wasn't sure how that should affect my life. Was I only to date people I knew were pastors? Or I knew that they were going to be a pastor? Or what was I supposed to do with that information? And so it was a, a subjective thing. And can God do that? Yes, God can do that. But the question is, what do we do with those subjective experiences? It's kind of like um, Jonathan went on a trip recently by himself to Colorado. And um, he has some car trouble. And he had to go up to a strange house and knock on their door and ended up having to actually spend the night in their house. And the, obviously it was one thing on his side of the equation. It was another thing on their side of the equation. Do I let this young man that I don't know spend the night in my house? Well, I want to apply that to the idea of do I embrace every thought that comes my way? Do I embrace every prophecy that I hear? That, that prophet, prophet Eddie comes to me and says, this is what God is saying to you. Do I just embrace that and welcome that in indiscriminately? Do I welcome in every person into my home indiscriminately? Do I welcome in every idea, every word from another person, every subjective experience, every dream I have, and assume that it should have divine authority in my life? And that's really the question that we have to ask ourselves is what do we do with these subjective experiences? Because the Bible does talk about the fact that God is active in our lives. So if I say that I don't believe God is enabling people to have the gift of prophecy like it was in the first century where he's giving fresh revelation, that's not to say God is not working in our lives by his spirit. That doesn't mean he's not leading us and giving us burdens and desires and impressions and those kinds of things. For instance, it says in the Old Testament in Nehemiah, I think it is, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. God puts ideas in our thoughts. He gives, puts things on our hearts. And for, in 2 Corinthians 8, 16, it says, But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. God putting things on people's hearts, God putting earnestness in people's hearts, 
that's a very subjective thing. Um, now, there are other things that can go on, too, because there's also the verse in John 13 that says, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So not everything that can be put in your heart is necessarily from God. That placing of something in the heart was actually from Satan. But all of it, and this is my point, just very briefly, there's a lot that can be said about this, but very briefly, we need to realize that in 2 Timothy, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Which means that this book that we have right here is all that I need to know what God wants me to believe and to know what God wants me to do. So if I hear a prophecy from Prophet Eddie, or if I have a dream, or if someone comes up to me after the service and says, I really believe God wants you to do this, I am to evaluate everything that I hear in my own head or from someone else in light of what the Bible says. Would that be the right thing to do? Or would that be the wrong thing to do? And then beyond that, if it's not an issue of right and wrong, but an issue of would that be the wise thing to do, I need to ask myself, would that be the wise thing to do? Sometimes we get the idea, it's really spiritual just to trust God to do foolish things. That's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible says, no, look at what the Word of God says and seek to do what God says is right, and also seek to do what God says is wise in light of the Bible and in light of a lot of other considerations, the counsel of various people, your circumstances, whatever it may be. There's actually, um, if you'd like to read more about this, J.F. Packer wrote an article entitled Guidance, How God Loves Us. It's really helpful in this regard, and I don't have enough time to really get into it. But he does say this. He says, I've already said that God ordinarily guides his children in their decision-making through Bible based wisdom. I have dismissed the idea that guidance is usually or essentially an inner voice telling us facts otherwise unknown and prescribing strange modes of action. I have criticized the way some Christians wait passively for guidance and put out a fleece when perplexed rather than prayerfully following wisdom's lead. And so he talks a lot about all different kinds of things, and he kind of boils it down to this. He says the real issue is twofold. What we should expect from God in this regard and what we should do with any invading impressions that come our way. So he says that's the issue, is what should we expect God to do in terms of leading us and what should we do with impressions of various kinds that we get. He says when Christians feel that God has directly told them to say or do something, they should face up to three things. Number one, if anyone today receives a direct disclosure from God, it will have no canonical significance, meaning it will not carry any obligation. It does not carry the weight of Scripture. Any thought I have, any advice I'm given, uh, any dream I might have, any experience I might have, does not carry the weight of Scripture. And therefore, it's open to critique. It's open to evaluation. And a lot of people, when I was growing up, a lot of people would say, you need to hear God. And people would try to do that. And once they felt like they heard God, no one could question them on whether or not it was right or whether or not it was wise. And that's the problem is that if we think that God is speaking to us in a way that is authoritative, it can lead us to deny what's right and wise according to the Scripture, which is a dangerous place to be. Secondly, he says, guidance in this particular form is not promised. That we should not expect God to, to do extraordinary things to lead us, like give us double rainbows or... Lord, if you really want me to do this, do that. Those kinds of things. The Bible doesn't teach us to pursue guidance in that way. 
but he directs us by the Spirit through his word. And then finally he says this, direct communications from God take the form of impressions, and impressions can come even to the most devoted and prayerful people from such murky sources as wishful thinking, fear, obsessional neurosis, schizophrenia, hormonal imbalance, depression, side effects of medication, satanic delusion, as well as from God. So he's not saying that God doesn't put things on our hearts, that God doesn't give us impressions. He's saying, though, every impression isn't from God. There can be all kinds of reasons we feel a certain way. And therefore, we have to evaluate them. He says, confidence that one's impressions are God-given is no guarantee that this really is so, even when they persist and grow stronger through long seasons of prayer. Bible-based wisdom must judge them. And so he says, only impressions verified as biblically appropriate and practically wise should be recognized as from God. People who receive impressions about what they should believe or do should question such impressions until they have thoroughly have been thoroughly tested. And we can't even be certain at times, sometimes, about some of those impressions. So he's, he's basically saying that everything outside the Bible needs to be tested by the Bible. My own thoughts and feelings, other people's thoughts and feelings, and that we can trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us in evaluating those burdens, those impressions, the things that we believe that we should do. Well, lastly, and just very briefly, the question is, how should we handle imperfect spiritual movements and people in those movements? Now, obviously, what was going on here in Corinth, God was doing some unique things. And yet it was in a church in which they were abusing each other at the Lord's Supper. And yet they had all kinds of spiritual gifts. That One man had his, his father's wife and they had all kinds of spiritual gifts. And so some might look at that and say, you can't have that kind of Lord's Supper celebration. You can't have that going on in your church and it still be a work of God. Well, Paul didn't deny that there was a work of God going on in Corinth. There were some really off stuff going in, on in Corinth too. And a lot of people will look at various things and try to evaluate, was God really in those things like the Brownsville Pensacola revival back in the late 1990s? Was that of God or not? The Toronto blessing you may have heard of back in that same time frame. Was that of God? In the Toronto blessing, people were slain in the spirit. They were known for holy laughter um, there are people roaring like lions and making animal noises and all kinds of things going on. And the interesting thing about that is if you look at uh, the First Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, there are a lot of people that wrote off the First Great Awakening because there were strange things happening like those strange things. Now, I'm not arguing that any of the things I've just mentioned were genuine works of God. I'm not Evaluating that, I'm simply saying that Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise saying that simply because you have imperfect people um, that manifest certain sins and maybe even manifest some strange behavior, that doesn't in and of itself mean God isn't doing a real genuine work in that circumstance. And so he said what you have to do is not simply ask the question, what is wrong in this movement that's going on? But ask, what is right? What in this movement is actually what we should expect to find if God is working? And he looked at 1 John chapter 4. And in 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And then I won't take the time, because I'm running out of time, to read the whole passage. It basically says, if you look at that passage and read 1 John chapter 4, you find the Apostle John saying there are certain things you can expect if God is really at work in a person as well as in a group of people. And he says, just very briefly, 
that Jesus will be exalted, the gospel will be exalted, that sin and dealing with sin and repenting of sin will be at the very much a part of what is going on. He would say the Bible, the Bible will be exalted, not people's experience and what people are thinking and feeling and those kinds of things. So the Bible will be exalted and that therefore truth. People will begin to see the truth of Scripture in fresh and new ways, and they'll be moved to love in ways they've never loved before. And so he says there are genuine marks of a real work of the Spirit, but because of people's sinfulness and because of their weakness, they may manifest some strange behavior. And so don't simply ask what's wrong with what's going on, but ask what is right with what is going on. Anyway, there's, there's so much that this chapter raises questions about. But I just want to touch on that because we need to realize that the Bible says enough for us to know, all right, this is within the bounds of Scripture and this is not in, in the bounds of Scripture. And we need to be open to the fact that maybe there are some things we shouldn't be so dogmatic about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... Your word, we thank you that it encourages us to love. It encourages us to love in terms of using our gifts. It encourages us to love in the worship service, exercising self-control, seeking to follow uh, what we should follow for the glory of your name and for the edification of those around us. And so, Father, I pray that somehow that you'd help us in applying what we've talked about over the last five weeks, that you'd help us even as we talk about beyond the worship service, making decisions, and the fact that you still lead us, not through revelations, fresh revelations, but you still work in our hearts, and and you still lead us, and we need to evaluate those kinds of things appropriately. So please grow us, please help us, and help us to truly be grateful that you are at work in us and through us for the glory of your name, for the salvation of souls, and for our growth in love. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.